If you're following along with us with the book Demystifying Patanjali, written by Swami Kriyananda, we are on page 107, and this is the second pad, sadhana pad, on the 18th verse. What is seen or experienced in this world consists of, and what is inherent in the three gunas, the light of refined awareness, the impulse toward outward activity, and inertia. And this is present throughout the objective universe, providing both sense experience and an inner guidance toward liberation. We were here, this is where we closed last class, and kind of as always, we were talking about it somehow boils down to the gunas, no matter what we're reading, no matter which book we pick up, even in the Gita, we went very deeply into it. But I like the way Swamiji, or Patanjali perhaps, wrote, now has defined these three gunas, sattva as the light of refined awareness, rajas as an impulse toward outward activity, and then tamas as inertia. Swamiji writes here, and he says, you know, to really understand what guna is prevalent in us, and perhaps even in others, he, he talks about the community living experience. He says, when we're all living together, we get to really see and spend a lot of time with one another, and we get to see the trajectory of each other's expression, behaviors, over a much la longer period. And he says, and that's where you will be able to find what guna is most predominant. Don't ever go and judge a person by moment by moment. Okay, somebody got upset at something. Somebody's feeling a little low today, not putting out a lot of energy. But look at, of course, in our case, we're trying more to be aware of our own, you know, awarenesses and trying to tune into what guna is predominant in us. Because again, again and again, we've said this, the gunas, the key element of the gunas is that it is a directional um, awareness of where we are heading towards greater matter bound in our minds and in how we relate to the world or as he says towards liberation it will help us understand where is my energy most directed and it's helpful to see it over these large rhythms through the ups and downs of life through outer all sorts of experiences try to see what is the predominant response you have things also and then see it in others one way how Swamiji talks about the importance of seeing and understanding the gunas in others is to know how best to relate to them and he put this entire kind of philosophy especially in his book education for life where he divided the understanding of children and how to work with them and how to help them learn better through the kind of prism of the gunas the children who are heavier, the children who are more active, and then he called those children who exhibit mostly sattva, those children that are light. But that's entirely true for us as well. And isn't it confusing sometimes? Oh, you know, I said this to this person and he reacted this way and what you... And we're, sometimes our, our interactions with people are... It's a little bit of a hit and run. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes this person felt good about it. Sometimes that joke really rubbed them the wrong way. Sometimes, And it's just because... We're not able to attune ourselves to what's going on right now. Where is this person? Which vibration do I feel most kind of exhibiting in this moment? 
And whatever our interaction with them, however we try to connect with them, our intention should be, all right, where can I take them next? How can I relate to the next higher uh, level of refinement? And that's something that we need to look into ourselves as well. What is it that mostly, what's the bottom line of my guna? That in most cases, this is how I see life. This is how I express life. And that will help us know where we truly are. Because in smaller circumstances and in individual moments, we're able to exhibit all sorts of things. At certain times, just by my sheer will, I'm able to, all right, you know, I can keep the energy uplifted longer. But mostly if I tend to say no very often. If I tend to kind of drag my feet, even when I'm doing something and even I'm not, you know, I didn't, I'm happy to do this, but you see, you feel that heaviness in the body. It's not, it's not going there with a skip in your step and say, all right, let's do this. You start to see, wow, that's, that's the hidden understanding. Oh, there's more tamas in me than I thought. I'm, I'm not saying no, but the way that I'm even going about it is more rajo tamas. And the moment, I mean, I mean, I, this is things I'm saying about my own self. And the moment the work that was supposed to be done is done, I'm done. There's no other sense of like, what's next? What more could be done? Could I change something else? You know, just like, that's it for me. And those are those hidden, that's why it's so important to be so constantly aware, constantly watching, constantly kind of, in, um, Patanjali says later on, uninterrupted discrimination is the only way to move forward on the spiritual path, that uninterrupted awareness. And it helps also, you see yourself a little differently. You see yourself a little impersonally in the process. What's happening? What guna is coming through at this time? Rather than who am I, what am I exhibiting, what, how do I feel in this moment? Just like what guna is expressing through me? And then we take appropriate steps. He then goes on, continuing in the same vein. No, I did want to say, Swami actually brings up another beautiful way to look at the, the gunas. And he says over here, in which way do you seek happiness? That's another way to tune into the gunas. Do you seek happiness through inertia? By putting out less energy, do you seek happiness through restless, outward, oh, I need to do that. Or do you seek happiness in stillness, in silence, and in a refined expression of your movement, in a refined expression of your words, in a refined expression of unity, trying to see everybody as a part of you. It was a very interesting thought, like, yeah, how do I seek happiness? Well, unfortunately, inertia comes more often than I would like it to come. But these are the questions that are, it's important that we ask ourselves every now and then. And we've said this before, not to judge ourselves, not to get too caught up in the process, but at least to know, is progress happening? A lot of people ask, uh, you know, how do you know now that the cafe were meeting very, you know, just strangers. And some people, when you say, oh, I've been doing this for 14 years, they always ask, you know, so how far have you come <laughs> on the spiritual path? Like, don't ask me that question. <laughs> Please don't ask me that question. But yeah, how far have we come? You know, where are we in this? And the gunas is a nice way to understand that reality. Oh yeah, when I started, I was way more <laughs> into the Thomas gunas. So yeah, I've come some way. It's not a, it's not something. It's not a minor step that I have taken. It's in fact a major step that I have taken because I have loosened the hold of one of the gunas. And that's something to be at least a little bit proud of. 
He goes on then to say also the stages of the gunas are gross, less gross, <laughs> definable, and beyond definition. So here suddenly there are four stages. And of course, we've spoken of this before. This is tamas, rajo tamas, raja sattva, and then sattva. Because rajas is really a movement of energy. And that movement can go down, that movement can go up. And I was interested, I was like, the stages of gunas are gross, less gross. I mean, it's, it's a kind of a weird way to define them. Definable and beyond definition. And I was saying, why, you know, why is he saying gross and less gross? So as I usually do, always look up words. <laughs> what is gross? What's the definition of gross except not beyond just, ew, gross. You know, just, so gross uh, is, is heavy. It's something that's large, but it's also something that's general. The gross national, you know, the whatever, national gross, what is it? Product, domestic product, yeah. You know, it's just, this is the general idea. And tamas is, for some reason, it's more gross, it's heavy. And I was thinking, what is tamas in defined in the world? Feeling in, the, in fact, all of creation is tamas. It's very heavy, it's dense. Our bodies are the tamasic part of us, which is interesting. <laughs> If I go further into my body, what happens? I see there's a lot of movement in my body. There's lots happening. It's a very restless body. In fact, even though I'm sitting here and it feels like my body is just this one hunk of meat. But when I go inside it, it's less gross. There's a lot of individual things going on. And some of them are doing elevated things and some are doing not so elevated things like what's a not so elevated thing is that a lot of um, toxins are being produced by the very activity that we do a lot of uh, excretion is happening by the activity that's going on if I go further in I'll see every organ of mine is doing two things every activity of mine it's creating energy for good or to create something that will help the body and it's also creating a byproduct that is to excrete a toxin and a poison of sort. In fact, it's happening simultaneously. And so that's like there's energy that's moving upward to create something that's, and there's also an energy that's moving downward. And the more toxins that come into my body, then the harder it is, it's more, I start relating more to the grossness of my body. And that's why when we get sick, when we're like, you know, when we wake up in the morning and we've not, we're not in the practice of moving our bodies that much, we don't exercise as much, you feel that heaviness of the body. And therefore you relate a lot more to it. And that's the Rajotamas, energy being put out only to relate more and more to that grossness. And then when the body functions well, what's a defining characteristic of the body functioning well is that you don't have to think about the body. When it's not functioning well, you have to think about the body. You have to relate to it more. When it's functioning well, you can forget about it. And that's one of the things Yoganandaji said. Keep the body fit for self-realization so that when you meditate, you can dump the body. Forget the body. Now, I'm just talking about it in this very limited sense, but you take that into anything. The deeper we go into something, the subtler it becomes and more the sattva. Now, if I go even further, and I see the molecules and all that restlessness, in fact, stops. On a molecular level, things are moving really slowly, really in an organized manner, and the byproduct is much lesser. It's not, there's almost no waste on a molecular level. And that's this sattvic reality. And that's why we're literally trying to go within ourselves.
not so much on a physical level, but the further we go away from this gross reality, the more we start to see that the building blocks of the universe are very refined and are very sattvic, and that eventually leads us to Om. And Om is the ultimate sattva beyond which then lies that triguna rahitam satchitananda. He moves on from the gunas, fortunately, so we don't have to stay away. <laughs> I remember in the Gita, we just yeah, like chapter around. after chapter, all right, gunas again, let's do this. <laughs> what new can we say about it? That which sees or experiences through the senses, though apparently colored by the mind, is in reality pure consciousness. That which sees or experiences through the senses though apparently colored by the mind, is in reality pure consciousness. Now this is in direct contrast to what we read in the 17th verse, where Patanjali says, The cause of avoidable pain is the union of that which sees with that which is seen. And in this case he says the ego is that which sees. And then when the ego tries to relate to what it sees, that's where pain and suffering comes in, the constant relatability. But here, he says, that which sees is actually pure consciousness. But, he throws that caveat in there, though apparently colored by the mind. And this is what we have to realize, is we're not trying to become something else. There is already pure consciousness inside us, though colored by the mind. And if we go way back to the first few verses, what do we remember of it? That the four stages of consciousness were man, buddhi, ahankar, chitta. Mind, intellect, ego, chitta, biased feelings. And that's the thing. The mind colors it. The moment the mind says, what is this? The intellect has to come in to give it a response. The moment the intellect responds to it, the ego comes in and says, how does this relate to me? The moment the ego relates to it, then the chitta comes in saying, how do I feel about this? And that's the process where pure consciousness, that's the union of that which sees with that which is being seen. Pure consciousness, however, remains untouched in this whole process. And for us, that is where we want to be. Now, that's the key here, remaining untouched. If pure consciousness remains untouched by everything it's experiencing, the only way for us to know pure consciousness is also to remain untouched by everything we are experiencing. Now Swami writes over here and he says, but does that mean that we have to become some sort of robots and say, nothing affects me, you know, and uh, somebody's being kind to you and you're just trying your best not to, not to be happy about it or, you know. No, he says, because pure consciousness is pure bliss. So to remain untouched means you have to remain untouched blissfully. <laughs> That's a huge difference because that's how we see remaining untouched means I have to somehow get, you know, just gather my nerves and just completely pretend that I'm not reacting to this moment at all. But if bliss is not how you're experiencing every moment, then you're not experiencing pure consciousness. Then you've just momentarily kind of, you know, put ego on that, on a, on a very painful experience where the ego is just holding itself, not, you know, trying its best not to react. But sooner or later, that facade will break. And so that's another way to really tune into it. 
because if you're not experiencing bliss, you're not experiencing pure consciousness. And that should be another way. It shouldn't just be like, yeah, because I'm unaffected here, therefore I have access to that pure consciousness. Yeah, this doesn't matter to me, that doesn't matter to me. Sure, if, you know, if you don't like me, that's fine. Hmm. That's not pure consciousness. Oh, you don't like me. What a joy. <laughs> that's pure consciousness. He goes on and he says, that, oh, what is seen exists only for the sake of him who sees. I don't know why they make it so complicated. <laughs> okay, let me read that again. What is seen exists only for the sake of him who sees. What does that mean? It means everything we're experiencing is only for our sake. There's no other reality. There's no, not, it's not for anybody else. But what does it mean for our sake? means for our freedom, for our learning. Every experience exists only for us. Not for anybody else. It's not a learning experience for the person in front of you. It's not a learning experience for your children. <laughs> it may seem like, well, Narayani and I are having the same experience. You know, all of you in the room and all of us are seeing the same thing. I think I see this, you know, carpet. I hope all of you are seeing this carpet too. You're like, yeah, we're all seeing this carpet. So it must be that all of us somehow have to figure something out. No, it's just for us as individuals. Because the weird part is we don't know what saints see. We only know what all of us see. And so we are all in like... You know, we agree with each other. You're seeing the same sun, right? Yeah, so it must be real. But I don't know what the saints see. Master said, if you could only see yourselves as I see you, I see you all as light. Wow, I was like, I wonder what he's seeing. I see you all as light. Have you seen the Matrix? I imagine you've seen the movie Matrix, right? Now, everybody in the Matrix sees what? Just the world as we would see it. People, buildings. How does Neo, he's the chosen one, he's the so-called saint there. How does he see the matrix? As code. He only sees code. So when he's seeing people, he's just reading their code. And he's just, you know, those that standard, those green letters coming up and down, which looked so cool when we were kids. But I don't know if that's how code is written. But that's how he sees the world. He just sees people as code. And so for him, it's just a very, very different experience. Morpheus, standing next to him, thinks he's looking at something and Neo is looking at something and they're both assuming, because it's not like Neo is not responding to what he's seeing, but he's just seeing it extremely and completely differently from Morpheus. Both are doing the same thing, both have the same intended goal even, but their vision is very, very different. And that's how it is. Everything, every experience that comes to us is for our sake. That's important. What am I to gain from this? What do I need to learn from this? What is this experience telling me? Because that's all there is that's going on. Forget what others are seeing. Forget how others are acting. Forget what else do you think may be going on. Keep coming back and saying, why am I seeing this? Why do I see negativity? Why do I see people in this particular light? And then try to figure out what that might mean for you. The 22nd verse. 
though demolished as delusion by one who has attained his goal it remains a universal reality for all other beings and this is what he's saying for those who've attained the goal this entire facade's broken everything's demolished nothing that we think is real is real for them anymore though it remains a universal reality for all other beings and that's the hard part for us because all of us agree on what we are seeing it gets harder for us to break away from it narayan you also saw now what he did to me <laughs> you also agree with me you know that he's like a nasty person and you also see you know that he's being negative in this and we want we want people to agree with us we want everybody to see what we see and so that we can then later on say yes i was right i'm right in acting this way i'm right in getting upset i'm right in wanting more because this is how i see and we want more and more of them to see it with us but when we're away when we're out of it when the goal's achieved it's it's over it's like a dream and this is what yogananda ji always talks about when you wake up from it it's like it never existed when you're in it it's the most real thing happening to you right now everything is real in that dream and when somebody once asked master oh, if it's just a dream then what difference does it make and master said because in a dream if you hit your dream head it still hurts so as long as it's going to hurt you in the dream then you have to play by the rules of the dream that's where we are we're trying to figure out the rules of the dream if we can get to sattva we'll get as close and only then will we finally say all right now i'm ready to leave this dream behind it's very hard to want to leave this dream behind from tamas or rajas we can intellectually think it we might say i'm ready we might cry to god and say why oh, aren't you taking me out of this dream because haven't i told you enough how ready i am but if you're here you're not done if you're still seeing what you're seeing you're not done if you still think somebody it's somebody else's fault you're not done and that's how eh, these are wonderful reality checks this that's what this book is really about it's just a reality check krishna was sweeter patanjali doesn't mince his words too much the identity of the owner with that which he owns gives his possessions power over him he thinks them part of himself so patanjali saying we're not just identified with ourselves as we are we then start to identify with everything that we own my clothes my harmonium my wife my friends my computer my ashram <laughs> my phone narayan is always you never give me a phone i want to take a photo you have a better phone we bought this phone so we can take this photo but it's my, my phone, phone. <laughs> you know so i will use your phone i'll buy you another phone but use your phone it's just like everything is it just has become a part of me and uh, i don't want to and so therefore it hurts doesn't it if something is taken away if something breaks if something goes wrong then it hurts because we feel a part of ourselves swami ji although he took that same this reality and he gave it a slightly more spiritual perspective and he said you know the reason why we are so keen on possessing things is because inherently we are aware that we should be more than we are and so we try to expand and keep saying ye bhi mera ho jaye ye bhi mera ho jaye ye bhi mera ho jaye because it's a soul memory of that everything in fact is mine the entire universe is mine 
but the key element here is that identification and getting just very trapped and defined by it. And so, in this process, our possessions start to have power over us. The world starts to have power over us. That's where this entire, the problem starts to begin, is that the power we had, the infinite power of the universe, is dissipated. And now, pieces of that power are with my computer, pieces of that power are with my wife, pieces of the power are with my phone, pieces of the power are with whatever else I have identified myself with. And so now I'm scattered. The universal infinite power now has been cut and scattered across. And now individually, they don't have enough power for us to come back into that awareness. The cause of this identity is ignorance. Yeah, that's simple. We are in ignorance. But without this ignorance, no such identity occurs. And thus comes the complete freedom of the seer. Uninterrupted conscious discrimination is the best method for penetrating the veil of ignorance. Uninterrupted conscious discrimination is the best method for penetrating the veil of ignorance. Swami writes here, the only way to be in uninterrupted conscious discrimination is to keep your attention always focused at the spiritual life. He says, if you can hold your attention, hold your awareness at this point, unbroken, uninterrupted throughout the day, that's when true discrimination will begin. And that's very hard. We've tried it as, you know, Narayani suggested to us several times in different ways as a practice. And oh, we just, <laughs> even after she suggested that a practice and we close the class, it's over. It's, oh, you know, it's even gone. I've even forgotten that this was the practice to do. That's how, that's ignorance, isn't it? Ignorance is that veil when it just comes back. Whenever, <laughs> whenever we let our guards down for a moment, it's just back. And so we have to try to keep that attention, keep that focus at the spiritual eye. Swami says you can do it in two ways. Start with your heart and try to uplift all the heart's feelings or just keep your attention and your gaze gently uplifted at this point and then just stay there as much as you can. This will be perhaps our last um, sutra for today. And this is one's wisdom in the, in the final stage is sevenfold. First, the seeker has no need to know anything anymore. The cause of all suffering having been understood, suffering itself is gradually eliminated. Attaining samadhi, one finally eliminates every cause of suffering. He attains complete discrimination, requiring no further effort in that direction. Sattva-guna becomes predominant in the mind. In the sixth stage, the three gunas fall away and the chitta becomes completely calm. Finally, only the self remains. I don't remember this from before, the sevenfold process. Let's just go over it quickly. First step 
in the sevenfold process is amazing. This is about wisdom. How does wisdom come? The first step is the seeker has no need to know anything anymore. We're already, we're not even at the first step. We still think there's so much to know. Tell me this, tell me that. And we have, to, we have to get to the point. And this comes, it just starts to naturally come. And it usually comes, especially comes, let me say, when you are completely committed to one path. As long as you're willing to flit around, you will always see usne kya bola, wo kaisa kar rahe, how is he explaining this, over there I heard this, over this. And because you assume and you think that wisdom is definitions. And so you want to know more and more definitions. But when you just get, you have one, your guru, your path. Once you've more or less heard everything that he said, now you know exactly, more or less, ye teen char mere guru ne bola hai karne ko, bas. I don't need to know anything more than this. I don't need to ask, why this? What is that? How does this happen? Why is he saying this and this is happening the other way? Explain this to me more deeply. Just get very, very comfortable in knowing this is it. If I can figure these four things out, I'm sorted. But we have to get there and get completely relaxed in that stage. The cause of all suffering having been understood, suffering itself is gradually eliminated. And this is a nice, this is another tangible expression. When we start feeling that, oh, I'm not suffering at all, even when bad things happen. Even when hard things are going on, that sense that this is painful, this is suffering, why is this happening, this is unfair. The moment that starts to move away, that's a wonderful, another understanding. That's the second step. Wow, yeah. That, that there's no suffering at all. I'm just gaining. In fact, I'm just <laughs> gaining through every experience. Isn't this amazing? Attaining Samadhi, now comes Samadhi, which is an interesting, you know, one would assume the seventh stage is Samadhi, but he's just saying the third stage is Samadhi. Attaining Samadhi, one finally eliminates every cause of suffering. So, it's gradually going, yeah, we're still suffering a little bit, but we're starting to realize, no, there is no such thing as suffering, there's only divine bliss. <laughs> but then when you attain Samadhi, that's when you know you're established in that truth. But attaining samadhi is not freedom. And we've said this many times before. You've just gone into an extreme a state of freedom, of liberation, but we come back. The ego hasn't fully kind of extinguished itself. Then, after attaining samadhi, I imagine consistently <laughs> over time, he attains complete discrimination and requires no further effort in that direction. What is that perfect discrimination? Everything is God. That's the only discrimination we're trying to achieve. Not this is right, this is wrong. That's not the discrimination. This is good, this is bad. This will help me, this won't. In the beginning, we use those discriminations because in duality, we have to at least choose a direction. Eventually, perfect discrimination is sub-govinda. Everything is God. Ekonkar. Sattva guna becomes predominant. After that, sattva guna becomes predominant. And then the sixth stage, all three gunas fall away. And only then does the chitta become finally and completely calm. Because even when sattva guna is predominant, the chitta is still restless. There's still this idea that I am having this experience. The ego doesn't go. Even in sattva, the ego, the relatability is still, 
I am joyful, I am calm, I love everyone. And even though it's such a beautiful sentiment and it's such a refined state of consciousness, the I still exists. And as long as I exist, the chitta is always there. There's always the potential for the chitta to reawaken. And finally, only the self remains. So you see, even from samadhi, we keep thinking samadhi mil jai, samadhi mil jai. Even from there, and there's still quite a few stages. And what we also realize that samadhi only is one aspect of this. There are many that we could figure out right now without samadhi. We could stop getting restless about more and more information, knowledge, wanting to know random things. We can just, we can relax already. We can start perfecting our discrimination. We can look at sattva being more and more predominant inside us. I mean, these are things we can really do. And so, let's not kind of use this example, oh, I'm not there yet, therefore. No, do all these things. And then perhaps, uh, interestingly, in Sister Gyanamata's life, Sister Gyanamata was Yoganandaji's most advanced woman disciple. When she was about to leave her body, Yoganandaji asked her, what would you like? You can ask me for one thing. What does she ask for? She says, I want to experience Nirvikalpa Samadhi. And what does Master say to her? Oh, you don't need that. Even that is now lesser from the consciousness you've achieved. You don't need that experience. Imagine that. Because we are so, we feel like, you know, everything has to be, oh, that one experience is what I'm waiting for. No, refine your consciousness and then you don't need that. Swamiji says, all throughout my, you know, inner meditative life, I've not had these experiences. People come to me and they tell me all the lights they're seeing and all this and that. He's like, I've had none of that. But I'm in bliss all the time. He's like, what do I want? Do I want to see lights? Or do I want to be in bliss all the time? Then you don't need that. And so look to see what do you need, what do we need, perhaps more so in this time. And I'm stopping here mostly because from here we then, Patanjali introduces Ashtanga Yoga and he starts going into the eight limbs of yoga. So that'll be a, an entire world, so I don't want to introduce that yet. Perhaps Narayani has something. Is it okay if I step away? I'm going to use the rest. Yes, Thank of you. course. You I'm still in Tamas. Okay. <laughs> Elimination has to happen. I was thinking about what Shuja was talking about the gunas and what Patanjali says in this particular book. Swamiji says that tamas, of course, doesn't give happiness. Rajas, however, gives satisfaction. And I was thinking, wow, satisfaction, but not happiness. And for many of us, that's where we stop. As long as we feel satisfied inwardly, we think we have achieved certain spiritual advance, advancement. But then he goes on, says like, satisfaction is not enough. I mean, you have to search and seek for bliss itself. And I think this is the practice that I would like for us, all of us, to concentrate on this particular week. Many of us try to 
become more aware of the activities we have to do throughout the day and try to do them more, you know, consciously to bring more awareness, more concentration and all those attitudes and all those approaches to that particular activity. But this week, I want to take it a step farther. And yes, let's keep concentrating of doing all those activities the best we can. But now we are going to add a new ingredient. And that is to become aware of how much blissful energy we are performing, with how much blissful energy we are performing that particular activity. Because as Patanjali was saying, once you have achieved that blissful attitude, nothing can touch you. So the practice of constant bliss in whatever we do, I think would be a, a wonderful way to start perceiving our spiritual development. Someone very recently asked us, just on Sunday, like, you know, I have been meditating for almost two months, but sometimes my meditations are not so good. So how do I know if I'm improving spiritually? I mean, how, how can I measure my, I don't know, my evolution? And we always like to refer to what Swami Kriyananda said. I mean, you only can measure your evolution according to your level of joy and bliss. Are you feeling more blissful every passing week, every passing year? And if that's there, uh, that's the barometer that each one of us should focus on. And, and, and I think if we start concentrating more on that, am I performing this activity with bliss, with joy? If not, become aware of it and add that joy, add that blissful energy, infuse that particular task with bliss until eventually that bliss becomes not even your personality, not even your a behavior, but you are already beyond the gunas. I mean, you are in the consciousness of bliss. And I think that's where we should start concentrating upon. That bliss that is already innate within us. And we don't manifest it enough. So I think bliss, concentrating on adding bliss and maybe put set an alarm remind yourself in every activity what's the kind of consciousness i'm adding to this particular phone call to this particular email am i writing it joyfully blissfully am i cooking blissfully am i i am talking in that particular joyful state and it sounds very simple <laughs> but it takes a lot of energy just to be joyful 
midst of everything. So let's just take a moment to introspect a little bit. How are we going to add a new ingredient into our daily chores, daily activities, daily responsibilities? And scan your day and, and find for that particular task that drains your energy or perhaps you don't perform it yet with that attitude of joy and bliss. And how from today onwards that's going to change. And how bliss will manifest also through your physical form, through your facial expressions, through your words. Towards the end of Swami Kriyananda's life, he gave a very powerful advice and a guidance to some of his closest friends who will be leading this work after he was gone. And he told them, try to share these teachings, this path, not by just sharing words and concepts, but concentrate on sharing bliss, vibrations of bliss. That's the way to transform ourselves and the world around us. by sharing vibrations of bliss. Nothing else. That was his only advice. And during this week, in our meditations, let's invite the consciousness of bliss to bless us. To uplift us. And to be touched by that state.
Let's meditate on bliss as well. Let's think about bliss. Let's recreate bliss in our heart, a blissful heart, free from any fear, free from desires, attachments, expectations. The more blissful you feel, the freer you become. Let bliss be your guide, your guru. Your ally, your weapon, your shield, your best gift to give away to others. your best friend. Your identity. Your self-definition. Let that please not be superficial, but born from within. And then share it out. with dignity. Be responsible for what you share in this world. Lift your gaze at the point between the eyebrows. And inwardly, make a resolution. That for this entire week, The practice of bliss will be your goal, your mission, your privilege, 
and your challenge. Let's come together. Supporting one another. And inspiring one another. That this is our only and true dharma in this life. To feel that bliss, to become that bliss, and then share it with all. Let's wrap our hands together. I'm channeling the consciousness of Patanjali and all the saints who have achieved that blissful state. Let's invoke and invite their consciousness to flow through us and that consciousness of bliss out into the world.